Hello and welcome to episode 164 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. So how was Christmas? Did you have fun? Thank you for joining me for today's podcast, which is from the Northeast and looks at a number of unbelievably violent crimes which were carried out over a number of years by two men. If you want to see me live in London on the 30th of January, talking serial killers with Mike, the host of the excellent Murder Mile podcast, tickets can now be purchased online. Head to the website of our friends at Fever, who are hosting the event, or get them on the show notes here or at uktruecrime.com. Let me know if you're coming so I can say hi, and do join me for drinks afterwards, you're round, obviously. And if you are a Patreon supporter, contact me on that site so I can give you my number ahead of the evening. And talking of Patreon, a huge thank you to all my supporters there, but especially the new members of this exclusive club. That is Caitlin Kappa, Matthew McCormick-Hughes, Linda Davidson, Michael Punter and Paul Allen. Thank you so much for your support and please do enjoy the bonus episodes and behind the scenes content. I should also say a special shout out to the Patreon supporters who've been so so kind to me. Um, my really sad news of losing my beautiful Dalmatian dog um, yesterday. So um, thank you all so much for that as well. Okay, before we start our story today, let's take a quick look at the music we were listening to, or not, at the time of today's story, the 14th of August 2017. The number one was Feels from Harris, Farrell, Perry, Big Sean, Small Dave, Louise Smith and Sue from number 48. In the US, number one for 16 weeks was Despacito by Louis Fonzi and Daddy Yankee. Top of the album charts in Australia at this time was Ed Sheeran. In the news this month, my favourite royal, Prince Philip, then aged 96, made his final solo public appearance before retiring from public engagements. Rapper Kid Creole was arrested and charged for stabbing to death a homeless man in New York City. Barack Obama's tweet, No one is born hating another person because of the colour of his skin or his background or his religion, in response to the Charlottesville violence, became the most liked tweet ever. And terror came to one of my favourite cities in the world, Barcelona. The attack hit Las Ramblas as a van rammed into crowds, killing 16 people and injuring 120. Big Ben fell silent in London for renovations, and near the Cape Verde Islands, Hurricane Irma was forming, which would go on to become a Category 5 hurricane and cause horrendous devastation, killing at least 102 people. Houghton Le Spring is a small town in the northeast, almost equidistant between Durham, which is seven miles to the southwest, and Sunderland, about seven miles northeast. The UK's first female serial killer, Mary Ann Cotton, lived here, as she murdered, it's thought, up to 21 people, including three of her four husbands and 11 of her 13 children. Arsenic was her weapon of choice. In August 2017, living in Houghton Le Spring was 40-year-old Stephen Unwin. Also there was his friend and sometime lodger, William John McFall, aged 51, who was splitting his time between Stephen's home and her place in Blackpool. The pair weren't old school friends or workmates, but had met in prison whilst they were both serving time for murder, and they'd now served their time. They met at Her Majesty's Prison Swaleside, a Category B institution in Kent, and later got in touch via Facebook after they were both released on licence. 
They teamed up for work, working together legitimately, doing odd jobs and preparing houses for local landlords who were letting the houses out to local people. But on top of that, they were also stealing cannabis from farms that they happened to find in local properties. Let's take a look why both were sent to prison originally. It was Christmas Day 1998 when 21-year-old Stephen Unwin killed a retired pharmacist in his own home. Unwin was a low-level burglar when he broke into terminally ill Jack Greenwell's house where he was lying in bed. Unwin wasn't at all perturbed that the man was clearly seriously ill as he hit him in the head a number of times with a camera and then stabbed him in the chest. He then used a wheelie bin to take a TV set to his own home before returning for a video recorder. On his return, he set three seats of fire, one next to the body, which later had to be identified by dental records, one at the site of the theft, and one at the point of entry and exit. Jack Greenwell, a bachelor, died from a fractured skull and brain damage. At the trial in 1999, Unwin pleaded guilty. The judge heard that this wasn't his first offence. In March 1992, he'd been convicted of theft from a vehicle and arson relating to an HGV in September 1991. And four years later, he targeted a 72-year-old man he knew in Houghton Le Spring, breaking into his home and attempting to obtain property by deception and again starting fires. The QC in this case said the following. The man was asleep upstairs in bed. The defendant stole his benefit books and then set five seats of fire on the ground floor. The occupant was rescued by neighbours, and although badly affected by smoke inhalation and gas inhalation, he survived. The defendant attempted to cash a benefit order later the same day. Jailing Unwin for life for the murder of Jack Greenwell, the judge told him, You battered to death a harmless old and invalid man in his home, and set light to his dead body and home to cover your traces. You did this for the sake of stealing a video and a TV set. What it was that led you to have such a degraded view of human life and take it by such cruel means is by no means clear. Unwin's case was reviewed at London's Royal Courts of Justice in 2007. The justices here decided that a 12-year minimum tariff was sufficient and so on the 20th of December 2012, Unwin was released back out to the community. His pal William John McFall had a similarly shameful record. He was sent to prison after also admitting murder, this time at Belfast Crown Court in April 1997. The QC gave the details as follows. In the early hours of May 5th 1996, the defendant broke into 72 Station Road, Grinnies Land, Carrick Fergus. This was the home of an 86-year-old widow, Martha Gilmore. She had mobility problems. She disturbed him, as a result of which she was struck in the face, she fell to the ground, and then was repeatedly struck to the head of a hammer. The defendant was arrested along with his brother and brother-in-law. The police discovered the defendant's palm print on the inside of the front door in the home, where the man wielding the murder weapon may have been crouched and steadying himself. He then admitted his presence, but said he ran off when he saw Mrs Gilmore being disturbed. He thereby implied his brother and brother-in-law must be responsible. On remand, he told a fellow inmate he had hidden a hammer in a graveyard. 
the other inmate told the police. McFall then wrote to the police admitting he said this to the other prisoner, but said he'd been lying. The police searched the graveyard and found the hammer. The defendant then pleaded guilty. During his sentence, he told a probation officer he had killed Mrs Gilmore due to alcohol stress and panic when he became aware of her presence. But he still maintained that he'd been coerced into the burglary by his brother and brother-in-law. They were not prosecuted due to a lack of evidence as to their involvement. Both are now deceased. When he was convicted of this crime, McFall was seen to smirk. Yep, another one of those. Having been sentenced to imprisonment for life, he was released on licence on October the 29th, 2010. As you know, getting any job at all is difficult after spending time in prison. And the two men were both pretty practical and handy and made their livings by maintaining properties for landlords in the northeast. In the course of this work, Stephen Unwin had come across a petite Vietnamese lady, 28-year-old Quinn Nhoc Nguyen. A mum of two young children, she arrived in the UK in 2010 to provide a better life for her family. She was in the northeast renting out accommodation to other Vietnamese people in the local area, as well as running a nail business for her sister in nearby Gateshead. It's unclear why in the early evening of the 14th of August Quinn arrived at Stephen Unwin's house in Houghton the Spring. But it was absolutely clear what the two men had in mind that evening and that was to cause harm to her with McFall earlier texting Unwin the following chilling text Are we raping the chink? Quinn wasn't ever seen again alive and the next morning her badly burned body was discovered in the back of her Audi by firefighters after it had been torched beside some allotments. It didn't take long for detectives to trace Quinn to Unwin's home, and the CCTV he'd installed for his own security at his auntie's house next door showed just what had happened that evening. Quinn was seen casually wandering up to Unwin's back gate just before 7.30pm, and she picked up her phone to let him know that she was there. After a short delay, Another camera angle shows him walking through his yard to the gate, turning to make a keep-back gesture towards his home. Police investigators believe this was Unwin telling McFall to stay out of the way, although Unwin insisted this was not the case and he was just ensuring that his dog stayed clear. Once Quinn was inside, she was attacked, tortured and raped by Unwin. Detectives believe the two men had been planning this attack for weeks. They then ate curry as she lay on the floor and they took her pin numbers for her bank cards before leaving the house. At 9.51pm, Unwin, attempting to disguise his features, was seen wearing sunglasses and a cap at the local co-op using Quinn's bank cards before returning home. Then just over an hour and a half later, at 11.35pm, CCTV footage shows Unwin carrying Quinn wrapped in a white sheet to his garage with McFall assisting by pulling the sheet over her body. At 11.49pm, the men took her in her own car and the camera showed McFall carrying a petrol can while Unwin has a bag which was presumably of combustible material. Other cameras captured the car being dumped in the allotment where it was set alight. The two men then stopped off to use Quinn's bank cards again and also posed for the most horrific smiling selfie in the car 
At the trial, the jury looked shocked as they heard the detail of the prosecution case in the opening statements. How Unwin and McFall messaged loved ones and ate the curry they cooked as their victim lay dying in the house. How the two had instantly stolen money from Quinn's account with Unwin withdrawing £1,000 at cash points that night. McFall had contacted Unwin while they were on remand, saying he'd been to the prison library and found a legal loophole, despite what he admitted was damning evidence against the two men. That he was no John Grisham. This turned out to be nothing more than both men blaming the other, trying to confuse the jury and save their own skins. Something we hear so often on this podcast. The two men denied all charges against them, but after the jury deliberated for just four hours, both were found guilty of murder at Newcastle Crown Court. Unwin was also convicted of raping Quinn, while McFall was cleared of that charge. There will be no more opportunities for either man to return to the community, as both were given full life sentences. Sentencing the pair, Mr Justice Morris said, Stephen Unwin, you are a calculating, manipulating and ruthless killer. William John McFall, you are an extremely violent man capable of monstrous behaviour. McFall shouted angrily from the dock, that's your personal opinion. The judge added, Quinn was a young, healthy and lively woman, a mother of two young children and much loved by her family here and in Vietnam. It's not possible for any of us to imagine the horrific ordeal for which she was subjected to over a number of hours that night, but terrifying it most certainly was. And the outburst we just heard from McFall was in character with his conduct throughout the trial. The Chronicle Live newspaper that covered this trial in detail reported that this behaviour started when he began making cutthroat gestures towards the press bench at the beginning of the trial. Whereas Unwin behaved as you would expect of someone facing such serious charges, McFall was constantly commenting on proceedings and shaking his head. In those recesses before the judge came into the courtroom, he would turn round and goad the police in the public gallery, laughing at them and pulling faces. He even tried to tell the Chronicle reporters, who were sat directly behind him, that they should report the facts, and when told this exactly what they were doing, he complained about it being trial by media. He even did his best to get stuck into the barristers during proceedings, especially the barrister representing Unwin, the Pindasin QC. At one juncture, he turned to him and said, Mr Singh, please don't underestimate me and think I'm some sort of Egypt. Don't stand there time after time trying to make me look small and trying to make me look sexually depraved because that's one person I'm not. When he was told just to stick to answering the questions by the judge, he retorted, I've obviously watched too much TV. I do apologise. He wasn't even able to show respect for his victim's family. And on one occasion when Quinn's sister had to leave court as he gave evidence, McFall shouted at Unwin, Are you happy now? And when Unwin was giving evidence to the trial, McFall interrupted from the dock saying, Your Honour, can I go to the cells? I can't bear to listen to this anymore though after a break he was persuaded to stay in court. When repeatedly told by the judge to keep his opinions to himself, McFall complained, it's trial by media and social media, and added, how would you feel if somebody was telling lies about you? The judge said, if you keep interrupting, 
I'll have no option but to ask you to be taken down to the cells. I'm not wishing to stop you saying anything in this trial, but you must do it through the correct channels. McFall, like one of those annoying kids at school, was determined to have the last word, adding, it's not a very fair trial. Even at the end when the verdict was announced, McFall continued to share his opinion, saying, that's why we were found guilty, no other reason, because of our past found an innocent man guilty. I always said this would be a setup. You can report that in the papers now. Never have a fair trial in this country. Never have a fair trial. As the jury left the court and passed McFall in the dock, he said to them, absolutely brainwashed. He then accused the press of peddling their lies as he was taken down to the cells. Gwen's sister, said that she thought the British justice system was not hard enough on Unwin and McFall. She said, I don't want to blame anyone, but it seems that the government is too kind to these people because what they've done is too terrible. My sister was just taken away and nothing can change that. No matter how much these two people can pay, nothing can bring back my sister's life. But I believe that if these two people were released at some time in the future, some innocent people could be harmed and I'm pretty sure about that. It could be anybody. Nobody knows. I think they should never be released. They are evil. It breaks my heart that I'll never see Quinn again. But the result today does give us some justice. She was a devoted mother and an amazing sister. I will remember her beautiful smile forever. The inquest into Quinn's death highlighted some worrying issues about why Unwin and McFall were free to kill again. Northumbria police had recorded 26 incidents involving Unwin in less than five years since he'd been released, including Unwin threatening a former partner and getting in a fight in the street in which he threatened to burn someone's house down. There was also a threat he made to a woman that was not reported to the probation service. This happened in July 2017, where it was alleged she sent threatening Facebook messages to a female, threatening to smash her jaw and take it in turns with a cousin to rape her. Detective Inspector Edward Small told the inquest in Sunderland that the force had abandoned a system designed to automatically notify the probation services of offences to save officers time. Asked why the flags and markers scheme was withdrawn in 2015, he replied, due to the demand and the belief it was not as an effective a way of monitoring that information as possible. One person's interaction with police could generate four or five flags in one incident. It was the time taken to research each flag, which was putting such demands on the officers. Again, it just makes you lost for words, doesn't it? What what can you say to that? And about everything we've heard today, what do you make of it? Poor Quinn. Just five foot tall and weighing only seven stone. She didn't stand a chance in that house against Unwin and McFall. And her poor family and friends He had to sit through the trial and hear all the terrible details of what happened to her. Just sheer horror. Her sister later said that she couldn't tell her parents the just the sheer horror of what happened to her sister. They had to read it through the papers, which which must just have been awful for them. There are some terrible images of Quinn's sister in court and around court carrying a picture of her sister in floods of tears. You just don't know how they could have gone through the trial, do you? And once again, I just can't quite comprehend 
just how scared Quinn must have been during her last hours. It's something that you can't really even think about. And as for Unwin and McFall, I suppose that depressingly, once again, we have to ask questions about why they were deemed to be safe to live in our communities. At least this time, they both got the sentences they deserved, so won't be able to hurt any innocent people again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group. And to support the show, head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where for a quid or two a month you can access over 30 bonus episodes and other exclusive content. So that's all for me for 2019. How's it been for you? It's been a mixed decade for me. Some really good parts, but such a sad ending yesterday, losing my darling Cooper. I'm just devastated. But I'm hopeful for 2020, for me and for you. I wish you, your families, and all your lovely special pets all the very, very best for next year. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, whatever happens with the others, stay classy.